hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. After silencing doctors who use COVID treatments they didn't like, the Biden administration now has a warning about a drug they were pushing themselves. It's crazy. All the details next. About Paxlovid, the clinical data suggests that it has an enormously beneficial impact, reduces uh, hospitalizations by more than 90%, uh, and uh, is very, very effective at preventing severe disease. You remember that? That was what, like a month ago? The administration was pushing this great drug that was going to help treat COVID, and it dismissed all those who questioned its efficacy. Well, now we're finding out that COVID symptoms can return after you take this drug, again, that was sold five minutes ago by the White House as the drug that was going to help you get rid of COVID. Okay, I wish I was joking. I'm not. So the CDC this week put out a health advisory warning of something called COVID rebound. What? It starts two to eight days after initial recovery and may bring a, quote, brief return of symptoms, regardless of VAC status. This is, okay, I don't even know where to start with Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist, author of Courage to Face COVID-19. Also with me, Dr. Harvey Risch, epidemiology professor at Yale School of Public Health. I haven't seen you in a while, Dr. Risch. Glad to see you on tonight. Um, now, this is the first time I've seen a treatment that actually brings COVID back after supposedly treating it. This is, is this is kind of a first for me. What are your thoughts on this tonight? Well, this was actually in the Pfizer materials that were given to the FDA for its review. And it turns out that in the 97 patients that were treated in, in their trial, 11 of them had this rebound phenomenon that after five to seven days of treatment and then another few days elapsed, then the symptoms started coming back. The uh, FDA has said, oh, well, you just treat it with another course of Paxlovid, but of course that was not tested in the trial. We don't really know exactly what's going on. Paxlovid is a problematic drug in the first place because it has so many interactions with commonly used drugs like statins and other things that have to either be stopped or doses changed that it makes it very complicated to administer. Now, Dr. McCullough, this is exactly the kind of thing that drives people to distrust those very public health officials who claim to be in desperate desire of our trust and our faith, is it not? You're right. They should be working with experienced clinicians. Uh, you know, we've been working with drugs in combination. That's the key thing. Paxlovid is not a standalone drug. We've always used hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in sequence combination. And in the paper by Gupta and colleagues from the Boston VA, it was a 71-year-old man who was triple vaxxed, who clearly had documented viral rebound. Uh, he had two peaks of uh, ascending viral load. And even vaccine enthusiast Dr. Peter Hotez from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston has commented 
that Pekslavoid, he basically, you know, took his course and then worsened. What he really needed is he needed the McCullough Protocol. It's copyrighted, and we use drugs in sequence combination, budesonide, uh, adding additionally uh, doxycycline or zithromycin, oral prednisone, oral colchicine, and aspirin. It's never a single drug to treat COVID. Now, guys, speaking of Dr. Hotez, on another issue that's making headlines all around the world is the issue of monkeypox. And who really is spreading it or susceptible to it? Let's watch. Is it mostly men involved in these intimate relations who are more likely to get monkeypox? That seems to be the major profile. That actually, in its own uh, interesting way, is good news because it means that you can identify uh, people who are potentially transmitting the infection. Dr. Rish, this is on the monkeypox issue, which is the next viral issue that I think the public health authorities want to, us to you know, trust them on. And from what we've heard so far, uh, you know, it, it looks like this is a very limited risk. It's a very small risk, but it's a risk in a particular subset of people, mostly. Um, and yet to, to listen to some of the other folks on television, you would think you're going to get it by just, you know, going to the gym. That's right. This is a very narrow, defined population at higher risk. Even among them, it's not a high risk. And even people who get it, it's not a high risk of severe outcome. So all things considered, this is basically a, a nothing burger, as they say. It's not going to be a widespread pandemic. And the one thing that they're not talking about is there may be some evidence that risk is increased in people who have actually been heavily vaccinated. That has to be worked out yet. We'll find out. Mm, well, that's terrifying to hear that. Um, Dr. McCullough, New York City is actually so desperate to get people masked up again that apparently now they're using monkeypox to try to get everyone in the city to wear those godforsaken masks again. The state's Department of uh, Health stating that masks can protect against monkeypox as well as other viruses circulating in New York City. Is there any truth to that whatsoever, Dr. McCullough? No, it's a hyperbolic overreaction. You know, there was a case of monkeypox in Dallas last summer, paper by Rao and colleagues, MMWR, published April of 2022. A man from Africa, he had lots of contact. He went to Atlanta, Dallas, was all over the place, finally hospitalized. He was treated with the drug T-pox or Ticoviramat. It works fine. But the important thing, Laura, they did all the contact tracing. He came in contact with tons of people. Nobody got it. Gentlemen, it's always great to see you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. Likewise. Thank you. That was Laura Ingram. She's always a lot of fun to work with on Fox News. And uh, I can tell you, we cover a range of topics pretty quickly in the overall program. I was on with Dr. Harvey Risch from Yale, who's been a part of our overall C-19 working group from the very beginning. He also testified with me in the U.S. Senate. I have a terrific program and I was so happy that I was able to work with Dr. Pierre Corey on this issue of the McCullough Report. And so we're going to get into it and really focus on the range of vaccine injury syndromes, COVID-19 vaccine injury syndromes occurring with Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and then soon we'll learn about Novavax. Our music segment this week is by the group Faithless Town Live Free.
Live Free by Faithless Town. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is some color. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, Marburg virus, monkeypox, staphylococcal infections, mold spores, What's going to be next? Do you own a small business or do you have a lot of people visiting your home, maybe care workers helping you with elderly people at home? You need fresh air. You need clean, sterilized rooms. and You need to be able to hold out your place of business in your home as being as germ-free as possible. Enter the Genesis Fogger. Genesis Fogger is a unique product. It's mobile. You can move it around the house. Uh, it's a unit that you uh, put in a mixture of HOCl, which provides this fine mist. It sterilizes the air. It also sterilizes surfaces within the house. It's wonderful for small business owners who need to sterilize or fumigate a bathroom. Uh, maybe you have uh, men's and women's bathrooms in your business. Uh, you have entryways, common ways, common areas that you need to sterilize. So you need to be able to provide some assurances to your clientele, your family, and your visitors that your airspace is as clean as possible. Sure, we're all using HEPA filters. We're all using hand sanitizer and surface cleansers. But I tell you, we forget about the air. It's very, very important, especially the heavy air in those public restrooms. I think every small business owner ought to have a Genesis Fogger. So go to AmericaOutloud.com and look at our banner ads for the Genesis Fogger. Click on it and enter in the promo code OUTLOUD. The big purchase on the Genesis Fogger is actually the unit. That's where you want to take advantage of the America Out Loud uh, savings when you purchase this product to get the HOCL that you'd fill in the tank periodically. That's uh, not a big expense, but it's really get your discount off the purchase of the unit and get secure, get reassured that you are ready for the next pathogen to enter into your home, or your small business. Genesis Fogger. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. 
Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications. America out loud talk radio. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's Healthy Cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use Healthy Cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The Immune Super Boost, Focus and Memory, and the REM Sleep Supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to invite back to the microphone someone who now needs no introduction, Dr. Pierre Corey. Dr. Corey is a critical care physician and one of the leaders and founders of FLCC. They've been a lead group on the early treatment of COVID-19. Many of you have seen the chapters in my new book titled Courage to Face COVID-19, uh, on the FLCC. In fact, I owe Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick, since they're mentioned so heavily in the book, uh, author copies, and they're sitting in my living room right now. I need to get the mailers and get them out to their home addresses. But I've invited Dr. Corey on the line because in this, uh, this next uh, few hours, he's going to be presenting to FLCC and the group uh, of interested listeners and the worldwide group overall an approach to something we've been waiting for a solution for, and that's the array of injuries that occur after COVID-19 vaccination. Dr. Corey, welcome back to the McCullough Report. Hey, great, Peter. Good to be back. Thanks. 
Well, let's set the stage about vaccine injuries first. What, what are, what's the spectrum of vaccine injuries and what's the, what's the natural history of these, if you can speak about them generally or, or according to kind of different categories? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, Peter, to answer that question. I, you know, neither of us should go further before mentioning one of the vaccine injuries, which is death, right? And I don't see those patients because uh, I hate to sound so morbid, but they're dead, right? And so we, we know that these sudden arrests, um, many of them we think are either myocarditis induced or really we know this is thrombotic, right? They're getting these, these clots and very odd clots and fibrin clots and we're seeing, uh, you know, a plethora of strokes and, and and sudden cardiac death, and 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 the numbers of that, you know, we can only guess at, but they're they're absolutely been unacceptable. And you've spoken about that, Peter. You've spoken very well about that, about how, you know, suddenly in COVID, uh, the regulatory stance was went from, you know, uh, associated until proven otherwise right, to uh, not associated uh, until proven, right? We, we, we completely reversed our risk tolerance around these things. And so, so but going beyond the, the, sudden, <clears throat> the sudden deaths that um, we're seeing, so Peter, what, what I generally see are clearly, it basically the way I define it, it's, it's a constellation of symptoms, right? It's generally not one symptom. I mean, it's very rare that I see uh, a patient with a single symptom. It usually crosses a number of organ systems, you know, from, from the most common to the least common, almost everyone presents with a fatigue that they've never felt before. I mean, loss of energy, uh, uh, they either sleep a lot or they feel like they have to lie down a lot during the day. So, so it's this moderate to severe fatigue. The next most common, um, there's a lot of overlap with long haul here. There's a couple of important differences, but, but uh, you know, because the spike protein is central to both syndromes, um, obviously there's going to be overlap, right? Because we've talked about that, that spike protein's a pathogen, but, you know, we're seeing fatigue. We see a variation, which is like kind of post-exertional malaise or just they feel worse when they try to do any activities. You know, they do even, even sort of uh, what, what they would consider a low level activity will set them back. It'll kind of flare up their other symptoms or they'll make the fatigue worse. Sometimes they'll have like a good day and they try to do too much. The next couple of days they're in bed. Um, you know, the third thing that we see is um, sort of, you know, the dysautonomia, right? So you're seeing patients with these fast heart rates, uh, low blood pressures on standing. We're seeing orthostatic changes. And then in the vaccine injury in particular, they seem to suffer from a lot of neuropathic symptoms, right? So from sensory to motor abnormalities, right? So you have like, you've seen these videos that go around and, you know, I see them in my patients. They, they suddenly have uncontrollable shaking. They have fasciculations where you actually, they send me videos of their leg and you could see like one of their leg muscles contracting rapidly. Um, they'll have like awake convulsions where the whole body starts to shake. They'll get foot drop, you know, or dragging feet where suddenly their leg is, is weak for some amount of hours. And then a ton of sensory neuropathies, which we believe is a small fiber neuropathy, right? So like burning pains, prickly pains, electric shock-like feelings, numbness. Um, and, and so those neuropathic symptoms are, are really, the, the, I see way more of those in the vaccine injured than I do long haul. And then, and then there's just a whole list of them. 
right? So there's things like insomnia, right? They suddenly have trouble sleeping where they didn't have before. Headaches are really common. You know, I, I, I have had patients who really, they could, you know, will treat their symptoms. The one thing that, that remains is like a headache. And, and I've had patients disabled from these new onset headaches. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of list a lot of the symptoms on our protocol. Um, and then there's like kind of these symptom clusters, right? So small fiber neuropathy, uh, POTS, dysautonomia, um, brain fog, right? So difficulty concentrating, memory, processing tasks. And, and when you put any number of those together in a patient, it effectively renders them disabled. And, and Peter, I'm sure you're seeing these patients in your practice, right? I'm sure you're seeing a lot of uh, myocarditis centric patients, but I'm sure you see, see others as well. It's true. You know, I think you summarized that quite well. It's, it's such a range of symptoms. Just to go back to death for a minute, I think it's reasonable to categorize death as the immediate allergic uh, anaphylactoid or anaphylactic deaths that occur right in the vaccine center. I mean, they, there are ones True. where the CPR is going on. We know that the messenger RNA or the adenoviral DNA is taken up and spike protein is produced within an hour. So mm. I've heard vignettes of uh, someone taking their, you know, their grandfather to get a, uh, get a vaccine and then actually have them die on the way home uh, yep. in the passenger seat. Uh, and it may just be early uh, production of spike protein in the wrong place at the wrong Shocking. time. Uh, and, and Peter, you know, when you, you know, I know you've done it, I've done it too, but when I first got interested in this signal that was screaming from the VARES database, right? Um, you know, what was interesting about VARES in contrast to like the European, you know, the, you know, Eurovigilance database is that in VARES, they had, they actually include clinical vignettes, right? You can actually read the descriptions of the temporal association, sort of like what you just mentioned, right? You take someone on the way home in the car, but in vignette after vignette, it was like same day events. They would get their vaccine at 12 noon. They'd start complaining of not feeling well, you know, in the afternoon. And then, you know, many of these were elderly at the time because it was early on and they would check on them in their bed and they'd be found, uh, you know, pulseless in bed, same day, constantly over and over. It's true. So beyond that first, uh, you know, immediate time frame. It's clear, uh, for instance, after the second shot, the myocarditis and the fatal myocarditis cases that tend to cluster around shot number two, particularly in men and with a relationship to exercise. So that's yep. there. We have the autopsy studies that show clear-cut large thromboembolic death, pulmonary emboli, mm -hmm. which really can happen at any time. Uh, in my practice, uh, I saw a substantial, potentially life-threatening one about five months after <clears throat> the vaccination. And I have some patients in my practice now 13 months after vaccination, where uh, on ultrasound, the uh, thrombi are not resolving from the deep veins. So, um, so we know that the thromboembolic is there. There's another uh, I think easily recognizable syndrome is called multi-system inflammatory disorder, MISC. Yep. And there in a paper, Lancet Respiratory Medicine, this happened in relatively young individuals. And as I recall in this uh, series, about 15% ended up on the mechanical ventilator, but they had evidence of multi-organ system dysfunction. So the brain, the heart, the kidneys, lungs, uh, liver, uh, yep. it's obvious uh, that there was systemic uh, illness and uh, that can be fatal, although most uh, recover. So that syndrome is well known. There's another one that's at about uh, two weeks or so more with Johnson Johnson and 
uh, and AstraZeneca, and that's VITT, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. And there, patients present with clotting and bleeding at the same time and a purpuric rash or a kind of a bruise-like rash all over the body. And, and when I've seen these come in, I want everyone to understand when we see these or pictures come in, they have to get blood tests, C- CBC, PT, PTT, uh, need to get D-dimers, what's called fibrin split products. We actually have to do an assessment for what's called disseminated intravascular coagulation. And the pathophysiology of this is very similar to heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, where there are antibodies directed against platelet factor four. And so uh, this is uh, an unusual syndrome. Everything I know about it right now has been terribly difficult to treat. People use corticosteroids, IVIG. Um, it keeps going and going and going, plasma exchange. And so uh, we have that difficult syndrome. So, and, and, and there are clear FDA warnings for intracranial blood clots with uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. So someone presents with a headache or foconeurologic syndrome, and there's a blood clot, a cavernous venous yeah. thrombosis or transverse venous. thrombosis. Okay, so these are, these are the defined syndromes. So, so can we talk, can I say one thing about that? Because it's so, it's so interesting that you brought that up because that's the other really frustrating thing, right? Is you just talked about the defined syndromes, right? Like, like the ones that they have actually publicized, which somehow, and I don't know what gatekeeper or editorial mafia is, is running the journals, but it seems like there's been a selective attention to these syndromes, which, which have criteria, they are published, right? They started talking about myocarditis, like that became something that was discussed across media and across journals, but yet all of these other syndromes and injuries seemingly are ignored, right? And I don't know why it was so selective around the ones you just mentioned, right? So we, we have the most data and understanding of, of things like MISC in the kids, right? The myocarditis, right. Uh, the cerebral, ve- you know, sinus venous well, thrombosis, and then, and then these horrible bleeding, uh, you know, diathesis. Right, because I think what we have to do is, as uh, on the doctor side of things, we have to rule out these serious conditions. So uh, for instance, there are uh, clear-cut papers published on uh, developing dangerously high blood pressure in people who have had high blood pressures published in the journal Hypertension, where uh, there is basically intracerebral hemorrhage grade hypertension present. In fact, people can have an intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, uh, That's been described uh, the- Robert talked about that, right? Mm-hmm. After Robert's, you know, Robert Malone, right? He's talked about that publicly after his vaccine. I think he had, uh, I think he was 240 over over something, but he had, you know, class five hypertension. That's right. And actually on my Twitter feed right now is a wonderful lady who I met through uh, Fox News. She went on Laura Ingram about the time I did last year, where uh, she was perfectly well. She's in her 70s. She took uh, one of the messenger RNA vaccines had skyrocketing uh, blood pressure, and then uh, uh, suffered an intracranial hemorrhage. And uh, her family really had to beg the, the doctors to do a craniotomy, do an evacuation of the thrombus. Uh, they did it, and, and now she's recovered. She's neurologically devastated. And uh, she just sent me a picture today of her, like in a rehab belt. Of, uh, uh, she is trying to uh, yeah, she is a wonderful lady. Her name is Carrie right. Quinlan, and she's uh, disclosed her name uh, to be HIPAA compliant. Now, it came from Carrie Quinlan and her daughter. The patient's name is Barbara or- Orandello, and Barbara went on. Laura Ingram later on reached out to me. So on my Twitter feed, she's got a 
shirt and on the front it has messenger RNA with the big uh, X through it. And on the yeah. back it says Moderna COVID-19 vaccine 3321 hemorrhagic stroke 3421. Wow. So she makes yep. it very clear. So the, I guess the point I'm making for the listeners, Pierre, is that um, of this wide array of things that the doctor and the patient are trying to work through initially, we have to rule out serious things. And in some cases, it will involve uh, imaging like CT or MRI. In some cases, it'll involve uh, you know, blood testing, EKG, uh, echocardiography, cardiac imaging. And we'll work through these uh, syndromes. We don't want to miss a blood clot. Uh, we don't want to miss uh, something that's going to require a surgery. And I've had these cases uh, in my practice. I do want to bring up one blood clot syndrome since it's, it's actually on my tw Twitter feed today. Uh, leading golfer, Nellie Corda, who is the second best female golfer in the world, developed a blood clot in her arm hmm. and announced it. And she was a, a previously vaccinated. That was disclosed. And I've seen two of these cases in my practice. And I want to let the, the patients know that the, there's a predisposing condition developing blood clot in the arm in athletes, and it's called thoracic outlet obstruction syndrome, where the space between the first rib and the chest, uh, where, the, where the major vein travels underneath there is narrowed, mainly because of muscular hypertrophy. Uh, and it can happen in baseball pitchers, uh, golfers, tennis players. It happened to one of my patients who's a swimmer. So it's already, there's already a predisposition. Then you take the vaccine. And in fact, in the case that I put on my Twitter feed next to Nellie Corda, as well as uh, it was the same thing that happened to the two patients in my practice, the blood clot develops in the arm and the same side they took the shot yeah. because there's lymph node distortion. Uh, there's a lot of deposited messenger RNA there and probably a lot of localized spike, pro uh, spike protein production that drives the blood clotting. Well, today what happened is one of the, somebody in the press Nellie Cordes had surgery, presumably first rib removal, and then the thrombus evacuation, which is what we had to do. And someone asked her, well, what's the cause of the blood clot? And she said, the doctor told me, but I can't tell you. Oh, again and again and again. That, that I think is going to turn though, Peter, but you know, like this, this, you know, <laughs> the, the, the cause that shall not be named. Um, you know, I, I, I'm hearing more and more inside the hospitals that it's it's now untenable. I mean, they're so they're seeing so much, such a high frequency of some of the complications you've talked about, uh, and and a number of other diseases. We don't want to go into cancer yet, but they they're seeing frequencies and ages of diseases they've never seen before, and 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 they're starting to recognize that the cancer is the proximate cause or trigger to a lot of this stuff. But but but, but, but so can we agree though that. The idea yeah. is uh, the patient comes to us and the doctor really has to uh, do a history and physical and rule out these serious conditions of which Absolutely. we have to do things, right? Blood thinners, uh, the various types of interventions uh, we've talked about, uh, make sure, um, uh, unfortunately, I've had one uh, death in my practice and mm. it wasn't because I missed the diagnosis. Uh, but I, but I, I was learning and, and I'll just give you the vignette really quickly. She, she takes the vaccine, took one of the messenger RNA vaccines after shot two, develops blood clots in both the arterial and venous systems of the lower extremity. Ooh. She previously just had COPD, kind of a, a, a lady about my age. And um, I think when she was like just on inhalers, that was it. Well, she develops this, this syndrome. Her legs look terrible. She gets a heparin in the hospital, a blood thinner. 
uh, gets sent home actually on no anticoagulants. Uh, family brings her to my office. I do the ultrasounds and sure enough, bilateral, multiple uh, venous mm. thrombi, largely I think in the lower superficial um, uh, saphenous uh, veins and the popliteal right. veins. So I, I said, okay, well, we need to go back on blood thinners. So I put her back on blood thinners. Uh, she also has a lot of neuropathic symptoms and we'll get into that in a minute. So I put her on fluvoxamine as an approach and uh, as well as aspirin. And then I see her back a month later. She's a little bit better. She's uh, still very debilitated. She's using a walker. And then the next call I get is roughly at about 90 days since she took the vaccine was from the Dallas County uh, coroner's office saying that she was found dead at home. I mean, they wanted me to manage the, uh, the death certificate. So, right. I mean, I count her as a vaccine death because it, it, she, she, it created a syndrome that was clearly related to the vaccination, which was these, uh, these, these blood clots and the yep. blood clots we know can be fatal. I mean, without having any other knowledge, I, I pushed for an autopsy. They wouldn't do it is the most likely cause is that she had a pulmonary embolism. I mean, there's no question. I mean, she started developing. I mean, it's it's quite uncommon to get venous and arterial clots simultaneously. I mean, people right. with peripheral arterial disease, yes, they can get clots, but but, but to have but these, those present yeah, synchronously. Yeah, well, well, these well, these arterial clot syndromes uh, came to attention in Dallas because of former two-way superstar Deion Sanders, who used to play for the Dallas Cowboys. So he takes the vaccine. This is all documented in the, uh, in the uh, popular uh, press, takes the vaccines, very promotional vaccines. He actually chastises Aaron Rodgers for not taking the vaccine mm-hmm. and then getting COVID. That was in the newspapers. And uh, sure enough, uh, it's reported that Deion Sanders has blood clots on the arterial system in the uh, common femoral, superficial femoral arteries, and he's having downstream emboli to his toes. So Deion Sanders, who's in great shape, by the way, otherwise really physical specimen, they are doing t- toe amputations. And one of the surgeons who reviewed his case, who also weighed in in one of the news clips, said he was close to having a hip disarticulation. That's how much ischemia he had to his legs. So Pierre, these uh, clot syndromes are real. They're happening to relatable uh, people. Another one of my favorite people in football is Herb Kirkstreet great college football announcer, former player for Ohio State, he announces he can't go to the NFL draft because he has a serious blood clot. And it was well documented that he had COVID in December of 2020. He takes his first rounds of shots in uh, March of 2021 and says uh, in his release then, hey, I don't see any other way of doing this. I'm doing the right thing. And I'm sure he came up for his boosters, you know, hasn't documented, but likely he took a booster uh, this fall. Yep. And sure enough, now has a blood clot and can't travel to the uh, NFL draft. So, so, so I want the listeners to understand that real people are having real complications. It's occurring right in front of us. What they're not doing is they're not coming out and saying, listen, I regret this. Be careful. This could happen to you. Only very few people have done that. So yeah. uh, Pierre, so once we've ruled out these serious things, and now you have a patient, just as you described, they have yep. effort intolerance, they have malaise, they, they can have some neuropathic symptoms, headache, tinnitus, uh, yes. in hair falling out, nail yep. changes, not hungry. What do you do? Yeah. So, so I want to say a couple of things because, 
you know, you talked about those syndromes, right? And, and again, like when I talked about the arterial venous clots, the only thing I've seen in my practice, especially in the hospital was, was HIT syndrome, which you kind of mentioned was similar to VITT, right? And, and so, yeah, they, they get all those things, but those aren't the patients I see. I think those kind of patients, you know, with sudden worst headaches of their life or a swollen arm or extremity or pain, they generally will present to the emergency room first. And I think through standard testing, those things can be picked up. They can be missed, but they can be picked up. But here's the challenge, Peter, is on that diagnostic front, I am continually shocked by how many patients come to me with totally normal labs. I mean, D-dimers are normal. CRPs are normal. Um, you know, basic chemistry, CBCs, maybe some mild, mild abnormalities. And yet they have so many symptoms. And I've never seen a... Di- such discord between the level of debility and illness in a patient and, and the sort of lack of abnormalities, not only in the labs, but in CAT scans, MRIs, EMGs, EEGs. And so, so I find like some of these patients come with a fair amount of testing because they have been to urgent cares, they have been to emergency rooms, and they have had those tests. Nothing was uncovered, and then they're sent on their way. Um, and so, so you know, I, I'm glad you brought out, yes, you need to rule out those important stuff, but generally I'm finding the people who come to me, they've been, they've been symptomatic for, for prolonged periods. Um, and the doctors have, have sort of given up is one way to say it, but they also just don't have anything to author and the do- doctors don't relate it to the vaccine. So, so the, the way I want to answer your question um, before, like what I do is uh, Peter, like you, t- you kind of ran through some of those defined syndromes. Here's what we think is going on with these patients, because, right, we kind of have to first understand what the abnormalities, what's driving the abnormalities. And, and these are the theories, and these are what the papers are showing. And I, I could probably, we, we think there's about maybe five or six different things going on. They can also coexist. So the mechanisms that we think we are going on are, are somewhat amount of uh, persistent inflammation, right? So, so we think maybe these monocytes or macrophages are persistently activated into the more inflammatory uh, subtype, and they are setting out cytokines. Um, another thing that we, we definitely know is occurring is this spike protein and these vaccinations are causing immense amounts of autoantibodies. Um, many of them are specialized autoantibodies, so they don't st- show up on standard panels. Um, but we know there are specialized centers that have done like these. And I, I don't know if you've seen these, Peter, but they, they, they do these extended autoantibody panels. Many of them are like G protein receptors, alpha adrenergic, beta adrenergic receptors. And so we know some of this autoimmunity is causing some of that, you know, uh, irregular heart rates and blood pressure. So inflammation, autoimmunity. Um, uh, in- in long haulers, we think some of it is persistent viral presence. I, we don't know how much that is. Uh, the other thing is we're seeing reactivation of latent viruses, right? So EBV, herpes simplex. Um, I've even seen a couple of uh, Lyme disease, uh, chronic Lyme disease patients. Um, then, you know, we do know with some patients, there's some clotting, right? This, this issue of this micro clotting, right? That, that's not showing up in D-nimers. You're not seeing them on ultrasound, but in some of the more specialized blood analyses, like either using dark field micro microscopy or fluorescent spectroscopy, they're seeing these like little aggregations of platelets. And so like, we think there may be a role for some amount of anticoagulation. Then the last thing is like mast cell activation syndrome, right? Because some people have these new sort of allergic type symptoms and then kind of multi-organ system complaints. And and mast cell activation syndrome, as you know, has long been under 
diagnosed and undertreated. And I do have patients who do respond to those therapies. So, so I just sort of like, when you ask like, what should we do? Well, that's my best knowledge of the potential mechanisms. And then we kind of have what we really do, Peter, I got to tell you, it's trial and error. I mean, we're still learning. I want to be real humble here. Like we are finding things that work. Um, we have some understanding of why those things are working, but um, I wouldn't say it's total guesswork, but you know, those mechanisms that I just listed, you know, they can, you can have three or four mechanisms active in one patient. And so, you know, working on the autoimmunity piece, the inflammatory piece, the clotting piece, the mast cell piece, um, sometimes you have to do those things. And then the other thing that really humbles me, not only the complexity, oh, the, the other mechanism that we do think some of this is mitochondrial dysfunction, right? That, that this spike protein is damaging mitochondria and cells, and that that could be underlying a lot of this fatigue. Um, but so understanding some of the mechanisms, we kind of are arraying our therapies against it. And, and the first thing that I will say, again, I hate to sound like a Johnny one note, but this is just coming from my experience. But the one drug that seems to help the most, uh, which is not only the majority of people, um, but most commonly helps a lot, is ivermectin. I think there's a few reasons for that. It's not its antiviral properties. It's the fact that it's one of the most tightly binding drugs to the spike protein. It also repolarizes those macrophages from like an activated subtype to a less activated and it also has a number of anti-inflammatory mechanisms. And I got to tell you, Peter, I divide my practice into ivermectin responders and ivermectin non-responders. Um, and I'll tell you the non-responders are much more difficult to treat. I find that I'm doing a lot more trial and error with them. Um, but with ivermectin, when they respond, you know, some will respond, you know, quite a modest amount, but some get really robust response. Responses. And so, you know, when you look at our protocol on the website, um, you know, it's not, of course, it's not just ivermectin, but we have a number of therapies that really work on those mechanisms uh, that I outlined. And it's, it's not so much a protocol as a general overview of strategies or medicines to employ. Um, and so I kind of will do different things in different patients. Um, but, but here's the last thing I'll, I'll say, Peter, is I will find that when I'm treating someone, like I'll, I'll use this certain combination of medicines and boy, will they respond to, you know, tremendously. And then I try to repeat that trick with another patient who seems similar on the outside with their symptomatology and they get no response. And so then I'll go to like second line or third line with them. And then I usually will find something that worked with them. It didn't work with someone else. And, and so I got to tell you, we're still, we're going to be learning, you know, what I did two months ago and what I'm doing now is, is different. And I'm, I'm rapidly learning. The papers are coming out every day. I'm talking to a lot of doctors. We're trying to collaborate with other doctors who've been dealing with complex chronic illnesses. And, and I got to tell you, I'm continuously humble, but I'm continuously learning. Are you aware of any randomized trials in any vaccine injury syndrome, Chad? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, how, how can you randomize a person to a trial for a disease that doesn't exist? Well, it do doesn't exist in the mind of the grant funders right now. I want the listeners to understand that, that Dr. Corey and I are very involved in randomized trials. We've, I've personally led many randomized trials, and we'd love to have randomized trials of a discrete vaccine injury syndrome and randomized to a prospective treatment like ivermectin versus placebo. But yep. these types of trials typically take two to four years to complete, and they can take up to half a billion dollars, certainly many tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do a high quality trial. 
And so we have a situation which I think will may exist actually for the entire um, duration of the whole vaccine injury syndrome era in medicine, where we don't have any randomized trials. We're going to have to go according to clinical judgment, experience, uh, retrospective cohort, prospective cohort studies to get a handle on this. Now to pursue ivermectin a little bit, my patients have asked me about this. For a patient, let's say, who has some general lower extremity neuropathic symptoms, myalgia, um, uh, hair loss, et cetera, uh, and you're going to prescribe ivermectin, what would be the dose and the duration of an empiric course? Oh, you had to ask that. So I, I got to tell you, I've, I've done a few things. Like I was doing, you know, and I talked to a lot of doctors. I, I mean, the, the short answer is right Right now, the dose that I'm using, and I can't tell you it's the correct one, but I'm using 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. The reason why I'm doing that is on occasion, I've found patients responded to kind of higher doses than like the standard 0.2, but I'm doing that daily. Um, and most people will start to notice a benefit within day, days, or maybe a week to 10 days. They'll start to notice that something shifted. The, you know, the, the, the big response responders will notice within days. I mean, I sometimes get, you know, clinical feedback from patients like, wow, I had my best day in months. You know, they'll say that within a couple of days of starting it. Um, but th those are the robust response, but I'm using 0.3. I, you know, on other patients, you know, when I didn't think they responded much to it, I've doubled the dose and didn't get much more response. So like, I didn't, I can't convince myself that higher doses are, are, are needed. Uh, so I, I sort of just, I just picked 0.3. Again, I, when you talk about those trials, Peter, it'd be really nice to get some dose guidance, but uh, that's just what I'm doing. And then what, well, how many, what, what's, what is an average duration of time? How many days? So I put them on it daily. So especially if I see that they're responding, um, I keep them on it daily. Um, I usually use like as my first line, I'll usually pair ivermectin with low dose naltrexone, um, also has a number of immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory effects. And I kind of start those two uh, up front, obviously with vitamin C supplementation, make sure the vitamin D and K2 is good. You know, so some of them are supplements. I use magnesium, melatonin. Um, and so with those two things, if they're improving, you know, I keep going, but I'll tell you. Those that really get a lot better on those, like you'll find that within two, three, four to six weeks, they're doing great. And, and so I don't stop it at any time. I kind of taper, like I'll say, okay, let's try a lower dose and see if you notice any symptoms or let's do it every other day. Cause it's a relatively long acting drug. And I would, this is what I found is I have had patients that after a several months treatment, I've been able to stop those medicines. I've had other patients who are doing just fine on the medicines, but when we start to lower or, or you know, increase the frequency between doses, they start getting symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that's how we find to keep them on. And I've had patients on them, you know, for long-term, um, you know, we're trying remember, you know, I always try to remind my patients, you know, I define health by really kind of by your function, right? You want to have, you want to achieve the optimal physical, social, financial, intellectual, sexual functioning. And, and many of these patients have lost a significant amount of that in each one of those functional domains. And, and with these treatments, I can get them back to a reasonable state of health. But some of them do require prolonged treatment. So it's really symptom directed. You know, I, I kind of so, see how each patient responds. So in general, I'm understanding uh, probably a six-week course of ivermectin. Yep. Now, how do you prescribe the naltrexone? 
So now naltrexone, um, right? So naltrexone only comes like from retail pharmacies, it comes in a 50 milligram tablet. Um, and we're using low dose and low dose is generally, you know, we'll start with either one to 1.5 milligrams. Mm-hmm. So the two answers to that, and the, the one that I do, I use compounding pharmacies and they, they will compound to any strength you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so one answer is compounding pharmacies. I have heard others talk about uh, dissolving a 50 milligram tablet, right? In, in sort of 50 cc's of, you know, either distilled or boiled water and, and then, uh, you know, or saline, I guess, uh, and then using that. But I, I've, I've just been using compound pharmacies. You can't get it from a retail pharmacy at those so, doses. So it'd be naltrexone. I've uh, heard some like 2.5 milligrams and um, daily, right? Yep. Well, uh, we yeah. do, we do, we, yeah, we start one to 1.5 and then I'll go to like, I'll double it the second mm-hmm. week. So we, we increase every week and at max is about 4.5 milligrams in older folks. They don't seem to tolerate the higher doses. So I might stop at around three um, in those that can tolerate it. And the things that they find, you'll find patients have that generally it's, it's a little bit of insomnia and or nausea, which will go away if you go back to the last dose that you used. And so um, sometimes you're limited by, uh, you know, some side effects, otherwise they tolerate. Now, now does this fall under um, DEA tracking and triplicate prescriptions and things like this? Or is this? Nope. A- no, not, not low dose, no checks on, no. Okay. Okay, good. You know, I have um, also fallen for the plural pericardial syndromes where the echoes look okay and blood tests look okay. I've still given a brief course of prednisone and colchicine and then for these neuropathic syndromes, I've tried fluvoxamine with very mixed response. Some have responded well, others said, listen, I can't tolerate this medicine. What's been your experience yeah. on those drugs? You know, for the neuro- so neuropathic, you know, when you look at the literature around like, especially small fiber neuropathy, because a lot of the sensory stuff, you know, the pain, the numbness, the tingling, uh, the burning, um, we believe that's a small fiber neuropathy. And I have had a couple of pain. And remember, traditional way to diagnose that is only diagnosable by uh, nerve biopsy, by skin biopsy, really, and looking and staying those small nerves. Um, I, we don't believe you need the biopsy because we think it's clinical. And it, kind of the way I diagnose it, many of these patients, they've had so much neuropathic symptoms, they've had EEGs and EMGs, and they're normal, yet they have significant nerve-related symptoms. And so, uh, you know, I, I know that it's small fiber, but the things that we use for that are, um, we'll try tricyclics, right? So amitriptyline um, or nortriptyline and alpha lipoic acid, which I'm learning that the dose for that is like 600 milligrams twice daily. So I've been using um, alpha lipoic acid and or tricyclics for some of those neuropathic pains. Other patients come to me and uh, this usually someone is offered, but they'll, they'll be on gabapentin, right? So neurontin, um, which which actually does uh, relieve the symptoms of that those neuropathic. You know, the problem is at some doses, you know, you're kind of limited by a little dopiness, right? So you know, with gabapentin, it can uh, you know give you a little bit of a dulled uh, sensation and or uh, uh, you know even sleepy. Um, but gabapentin is another symptom reliever for that. So um, I I really like those suggestions. Um, a lot of our colleagues don't know that alpha lipoic acid at 600 milligrams twice a day has been subjected to randomized trials yes. in painful diabetic uh, uh, neuropathies, and, and it is successful. And it's something I use in my practice. I also use it for Fabre neuropathy. I have a run a Fabre program at my institution, so I found it useful there. I actually do not have a great experience or um, a great support for gabapentin. And I, I think okay. I think sometimes the side effects, particularly in the elderly, 
outweigh the benefits. I've seen family members on it. People kind of get stuck on that medicine by yeah. their primary care doctors and, and, and take a look at that one because um, uh, it's yeah. interesting that you say that because I haven't started it in my patients, but I have had patients come to me. That's right. the only thing they were given and they do report benefits. But again, they, they also complain of the side effects, like you mentioned. So right. I, I want to finish, Pierre, just because you mentioned yeah. it on magnesium. Are, are there particular magnesium preparations you're recommending? You know, I... So many of these supplements we do, we get feedback that we should be using this, that, or the other thing. And do, do you have one that you feel is important, well, I mean, a specific you, formulation? You know, I developed an interest in this because in, in cardiology, we actually had a series of trials. One was called the MAGIC trial. And there was a lot of interest in using uh, high-dose magnesium for various applications in cardiology. Now, it, it turns out that there is an application called prolonged QT syndrome and torsade right. point where we give magnesium and we give it intravenously. What I want the, our view, listeners to understand is that the type of magnesium you get at a standard pharmacy is magnesium oxide, and it's not well absorbed. Uh, it uh, just causes kind of GI symptoms, and uh, it's, it's, like, it's actually the type of magnesium that's used in fertilizer, to be honest with you, in veterinary applications. Mm-hmm. It's not well absorbed. What I've learned from my naturopathic and holistic doctors is when you want to use magnesium chelates or chelated magnesium. And it comes in the form of magnesium malleate, magnesium glycinate. I think there's a stearate. And what I remembered is magnesium malleate for the muscles. And so when there's uh, fasciculations, these kind of neuropathic uh, syndromes, um, I've also learned, by the way, uh, for uh, premature ventricular contractions and, and cardiac irritability. So a lot of patients come in with palpitations. In Texas, for instance, we actually have low magnesium in the water supply. And if people drink uh, filtered water out of the refrigerator or drink uh, bottled water, they're not actually getting any magnesium at all. And so oh, no. magnesium deficiency contributes to this general muscle aches, uh, restlessness, fasciculations. And so um, I, as, and I've been doing this actually before COVID is uh, we'll recommend magnesium malleate, which you can get, uh, you know, at Amazon or, or at uh, any of the vitamin shops, GNC, magnesium malleate, 400 to 800 milligrams taken at night. Yeah. And, uh, it's, they, it's really they, helpful. Yeah. It's helpful. And you know, it comes in a range of different tablet sizes, but I can't tell you how many patients I'll ask them, you know, if uh, you know, I have numbness, I have tingling, I have, uh, you know, extra palpitations and I'll ask them, do you drink bottled water, drink a fridge of water? Yeah, I do. And they're in this post COVID or vaccine injury syndrome. Uh, and, and that's kind of my go-to. And yeah. it's helped a lot. So well, listen, this yeah. has been a terrific well, conversation. Uh, and I know you're going to jump on uh, the next uh, presentation for the overall group educationally. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Do you have any final words for our audience? No, just uh, go to uh, flccc.net. Um, we have a protocol there. It's got, you know, Paul kind of spearheaded and wrote kind of an overall document for what we know. It's got like 154 references and, and you know, um, uh, it's it's a guide for you, for doctors. I mean, you really need someone to doctor this protocol or this approach. And so, uh, but the information's on our website and, and I hope you're listening. But, but to does it have an acronym, which you guys always So, have. so it's called I Recover Post Vaccine. Okay. <laughs> we also have an I Recover Long Haul. And so, and we changed other ones. Now we have a, a I Prevent, I Treat, and then our math plus hospital protocol. So yeah, we've kind of mixed up the names a little bit. Well, listen, we need acronyms. So I think I recover probably is the most frequently uh, utilized protocol or suggestion. The other one I've heard 
people refer to as the World Council for Health, led by T Tess Lowry, where yep. they have some suggestions on what to do afterwards. So, but anyhow, this has been a great interview. Thank you so much for joining me on McCullough Report. Thanks, Peter. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report.